Chapter 4A of The Shake. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Shake by E. M. Hull. Chapter 4A. A month. Thirty-one days. Oh, God, only thirty-one days. It seems a lifetime. Only a month since I left Biskra. A month. A month. Diana flung herself onto her face, burying her head deeply into the cushions of the divan, shutting out from her sight the barbaric luxury of her surroundings, shuddering convulsively. She did not cry. The complete breakdown of the first night had never been repeated. Tears of shame and anger had risen in her eyes often, but she would not let them fall. She would not give her captor the satisfaction of knowing that he could make her weep. Her pride was dying hard. Her mind travelled back slowly over the days and nights of anguished revolt, the perpetual clash of will against will, the enforced obedience that had made up this month of horror. A month of experience of such bitterness that she wondered dully how she still had the courage to rebel. For the first time in her life she had had to obey. For the first time in her life she was of no account. For the first time she had been made conscious of the inferiority of her sex. The training of years had broken down under the experience. The hypothetical status in which she had stood with regard to Aubrey and his friends was not tolerated here, where every moment she was made to feel acutely that she was a woman, forced to submit to everything to which her womanhood exposed her, forced to endure everything that he might put upon her a chattel, a slave to do his bidding, to bear his pleasure and his displeasure, shaken to the very foundation of her being with the upheaval of her convictions and the ruthless violence done to her cold, sexless temperament. The humiliation of it seared her proud heart. He was pitiless in his arrogance, pitiless in his oriental disregard of the woman subjugated. He was an Arab, to whom the feelings of a woman were non-existent. He had taken her to please himself, and he kept her to please himself, to amuse him in his moments of relaxation. To Diana, before she had come to Africa, the life of an Arab sheikh in his native desert had been a very visionary affair. The term sheikh itself was elastic. She had been shown sheikhs in Biskra who drove hard bargains to hire out mangy camels and sore-covered donkeys for trips into the interior. Her own faithless caravan leader had called himself sheikh. But she had heard also of other and different sheikhs who lived far away across the shimmering sand, powerful chiefs with large followings who seemed more like the Arabs of her imaginings, and of whose lives she had the haziest idea. When not engaged in killing their neighbors, she visualized them drowsing away whole days under the influence of narcotics, lethargic with sensual indulgence. The pictures she had seen had been mostly of fat old men sitting cross-legged in the entrance of their tents, waited on by hordes of retainers, 
and looking languidly, with an air of utter boredom, at some miserable slave being beaten to death. She had not been prepared for the ceaseless activity of the man whose prisoner she was. His life was hard, strenuous, and occupied. His days were full, partly with the magnificent horses that he bred, and partly with tribal affairs that took him from the camp for hours at a time. Upon one or two occasions he had been away for the whole night, and had come back at daybreak with all the evidences of hard riding. Some days she rode with him, but when he had not the time or the inclination, the French valet went with her. A beautiful grey thoroughbred called Silver Star was kept for her use, and sometimes on his back she was able to forget for a little time. So the moments of relaxation were less frequent than they might have been, and it was only in the evenings when Gaston had come and gone for the last time, and she was alone with the Sheik, that an icy hand seemed to close down over her heart. And, according to his mood, he noticed or ignored her. He demanded implicit obedience to his lightest whim with the unconscious tyranny of one who had always been accustomed to command. He ruled his unruly followers despotically, and it was obvious that while they loved him, they feared him equally. She had even seen Yusef, his lieutenant, cringe from the heavy scowl that she had herself learned to dread. "'You treat them like dogs,' she said to him once. "'Are you not afraid that one day they will rise against you and murder you?' And he had only shrugged his shoulders and laughed, the same low laugh of amusement that never failed to make her shiver." The only person whose devotion seemed untinged by any conflicting sentiment was the French valet, Gaston. It was the Sheik's complete indifference to everything beyond his own will, his oriental egotism, that stung her most. He treated her supplications and invectives with a like unconcern. The paroxysms of wild rage that filled her periodically made no impression on him. He accorded them a shrug of ennui, or watched her with cold curiosity, his lips parted in a little cruel smile, as if the dissection of her lacerated feelings amused him, until his patience was exhausted, and then, with one of the lithe, quick movements that she could never evade, his hands would grip and hold her, and he would look at her. Only that— but in the grasp of his lean brown fingers, and under the stare of his dark, fierce eyes, her own would drop, and the frantic words die from her lips. She was physically afraid of him, and she hated him and loathed herself for the fear he inspired. And her fear was legitimate. His strength was abnormal, and behind it was the lawlessness and absolutism that allowed free rein to his savage impulses. He held life and death in his hand. A few days after he had taken her, she had seen him chastise a servant. She did not know what the man's fault had been, but the punishment seemed out of all proportion to anything that could be imagined, and she had watched fascinated with horror until he had tossed away the murderous whip, and without a second glance at the limp, blood-stained heap that huddled on the ground with suggestive stillness, had strolled back unconcerned to the tent. 
The sight had sickened her and haunted her perpetually. His callousness horrified her even more than his cruelty. She hated him with all the strength of her proud, passionate nature. His personal beauty even was an additional cause of offense. She hated him the more for his handsome face and graceful muscular body. His only redeeming virtue in her eyes was his total lack of vanity, which she grudgingly admitted. He was as unconscious of himself as was the wild animal with which she compared him. "'He is like a tiger,' she murmured deep into the cushions with a shiver. "'A graceful, cruel, merciless beast.' She remembered a tiger she had shot the previous winter in India. After hours of weary, cramped waiting in the Macan, the beautiful creature had slipped noiselessly through the undergrowth and emerged into the clearing. He had advanced midway towards the tree where she was perched, and had stopped to listen, and the long, free stride, the haughty poise of the thrown-back head, the cruel curl of the lips and the glint in the ferocious eyes flashing in the moonlight were identical with the expression and carriage of the man who was her master. Then it had been admiration without fear, and she had hesitated at wantonly destroying so perfect a thing, until the quick pressure of her shikari's fingers on her arm brought her back to facts and reminded her that the perfect thing was reported to have eaten a woman the previous week. And now it was fear with a reluctant admiration that she despised herself for according. A hand on her shoulder made her start up with a cry. Usually her nerves were in better control, but the thick rugs deadened every sound, and she had not expected him so soon. He had been out since dawn, and had come in much past his usual time, and had been having a belated siesta in the adjoining room. Angry with herself, she bit her lip and pushed the tumbled hair off her forehead. He dropped on to the divan beside her and lit the inevitable cigarette. He smoked continuously every moment he was not in the saddle. She glanced at him covertly. He was lying with his head thrown back against the cushions, idly blowing smoke-rings and watching them drift towards the open doorway. And as she looked, he yawned and turned to her. "'Zila is careless. Insist that she puts away your boots and does not leave your clothes lying on the floor. There was a scorpion in the bathroom to-day,' he said lazily, stretching out his long legs." She flushed hotly, as she always did when he made any casual reference to the intimacy of their life. It was his casualness that frightened her, the carelessly implied continuance of a state that scorched her with shame. His attitude invariably suggested a duration of their relations that left her numb with a kind of helpless despair. He was so sure of himself, so sure of his possession of her. She felt the warm blood pouring over her face now, up to the roots of her bright hair, and dyeing her slender neck, and she put her hands up to her head, her fingers thrust through her loose curls to shield her face from his eyes. She gave a sigh of relief when Gaston came in, bringing a little tray with two filigree-cased cups of coffee. "'I have brought coffee. 
"'Madame's tea is finished,' he murmured in tones of deepest distress, and with a gesture that conveyed a national calamity. There had been just enough tea taken on the tour to last a month. It was another pinprick, another reminder. She set her teeth, moving her head angrily, and found herself looking into a pair of mocking eyes, and, as always, her own dropped.' Gaston said a few words in Arabic to his master, and the sheik swallowed the boiling coffee and went out hastily. The valet moved about the tent with his usual deft noiselessness, gathering up cigarette-ends and spent matches, and tidying the room with an assiduous orderliness that was peculiarly his own. Diana watched him almost peevishly. Was it the influence of the desert that made all these men cat-like in their movements, or was the servant consciously or unconsciously copying his master? With a fit of childish irritability she longed to smash something, and with an impetuous hand sent the little inlaid table with the tray and coffee-cups flying. She was ashamed of the impulse even before the crash came, and looked at Gaston clearing up the debris with anxious eyes. What was the matter with her? The even temper on which she prided herself, and the nerves that had been her boast, had vanished, gone by the board in the last month. If her nerve failed her utterly, what would become of her? What would she do? Gaston had gone, and she looked around the tent with a hunted expression. There seemed no escape possible from the misery that was almost more than she could bear. There was a way out that had been in her mind often, and she had searched frequently in the hope that she might find the means. But the sheik had also thought, and had taken precautions. One day it seemed as if her desperate wish might be fulfilled, and she had had only a moment's hesitation as she stretched out her hand to take the revolver that had been left lying on a table. But as her fingers closed on the butt, a muscular hand closed over hers. He had come in with his usual silent step, and was close to her without her knowing. He had taken the weapon from her quietly, holding her eyes with his own, and had jerked it open, showing the empty magazine. "'Do you think that I am quite a fool?' he had asked, without a trace of expression in his voice. And since then she had been under a ceaseless, unobtrusive surveillance that had left her no chance of carrying out her terrible resolve. She buried her face in her hands. "'Oh, my God, is it never going to end? Am I never going to get away from him?' She sprang to her feet and walked restlessly round the tent, her hands clasped behind her back, her head thrown up, and her lips pressed close together. She panted as if she had been running, and her eyes had a far-away, unseeing look. Gradually she got command of herself again, and the nervous excitement died down, leaving her weary and very desolate. The solitude seemed suddenly horrible, Anything would be better than the silent emptiness of the great tent. A noise outside attracted her, and she wandered to the doorway and out under the awning. Near her the sheik with Gaston and Yusef stood watching a mad, ramping colt that was being held with difficulty by two or three men, 
who clung to him tenaciously in spite of his efforts to break away, and beyond was a semicircle of Arabs, some mounted and some on foot, leaving a wide open space between them and the tent. They were intensely excited, talking and gesticulating, the mounted men riding round the outer ring that they formed. Diana leaned against one of the lances that supported the awning, and watched the scene with growing interest. This camp was many miles to the south of the one to which she had first been brought, and which had been broken up a few days after her capture. The setting was wonderful, the far-off hills dusky in the afternoon light, the clustering palms behind the tents, the crowd of barbaric figures in picturesque white robes, the horsemen moving continuously up and down, and in the midst of everything the beautiful wild creature, frenzied by the noise, kicking and biting at the men holding him. After a moment the sheik held up his hand, and a man detached himself from the chattering crowd and came to him salaaming. The sheik said a few words, and with another salaam and a gleam of white teeth, the man turned and approached the struggling group in the centre of the ring. Diana straightened up with interest. The frantic colt was going to be broken. It was already saddled. Several additional men ran forward, and between them the horse was forcibly held for a moment, only for a moment, but it was long enough for the man who leaped like a flash on to his back. The others fell away, racing from the reach of the terrible lashing heels. Amazed for the moment at the sudden unaccustomed weight, the colt paused and then reared straight up, till it seemed to Diana that he must fall backward and crush the man who was clinging to him. But he came down at last, and for a few moments it was almost impossible to follow his spasmodic movements as he strove to rid himself of his rider. The end came quickly. End of chapter 4a